morning, Park Hill. Wow, good morning. Hi. You're real too. Um, oh, it's a delight to be with you this morning. What a beautiful day uh, in Oregon where I'm... Anybody else from Oregon? Do we have any Oregon folks in the room? Are you serious? Praise the Lord. Do we have any Eugene, Oregon folks in the room? Oh, that's sad. Yes, there's one. I sensed something. Good to be with you. Well, it rarely is sunny like this, and it's a, it's a joy to be here. Pastor Evan, thank you for uh, the generous introduction and for inviting me to come and share uh, today. Um, I'm, I'm gonna, we're going to take some time, and, and we're going to read the Bible. I'd, I'd love, if at all possible, uh, if you have a copy of your Bible available uh, at your disposal, uh, to find your way this morning to Acts chapter 2 um, in Luke's telling of the early church and the Holy Spirit in the early church. We're going to spend some time uh, and read uh, together today uh, Acts chapter 2. And <clears throat> I specifically today want to talk about um, a, a topic near and dear to my heart, and that is... How uh, we, um, wherever you may find yourself today, um, how do we experience God's life by the Spirit if we bring to this room really big questions about our faith? Um, if, we're, if we're really struggling to believe? And, and maybe, maybe for some of us, we've walked through this experience that we call deconstruction, and that is that you've begun to ask and undo maybe some things that you used to believe. And, and what I want to do for a few moments in our time together today is we're going to celebrate Pentecost, and we're going to celebrate this day that the Holy Spirit has given to the church. But I want to look through this story and ask a, very, ask a set of questions about our moment in history. How do we follow God when we are really, when we are overwhelmed with questions, doubts, and, and maybe even questioning our own faith? Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you come? And I mean, if you're a praying person, maybe in your own heart, or even out loud, just... Would you say that with me, saying, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Your people have gathered around your word, God. And as we anticipate what you, you would like to do, we ask that, that you would make a unique visitation to your church today. Be present, God, here. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, in, in the last gathering, um, it was really cool. I really felt like God did some really cool things in our last gathering. In fact, a young woman that I baptized 13 years ago came up to me and hugged me. And, and I looked at her and she had grown up like crazy. She was like an adult. And, it, and I said, you're still following Jesus. And she said, I am, but it's been a long journey. God, I felt like God did some really great things last, last, last gathering. But here's the problem with preaching for two services is it's really easy to just retweet what happened last service. And I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to trust me that I want what the Spirit wants. I don't want to just retweet. Because we're not going to do the Spirit by the way of the flesh. Let's do the Spirit by the way of the Spirit. So let's, 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 let's see what God has to say to us today, okay? Okay. Um, with your Bibles open to Acts chapter 2, I want to tell you a story, and then we're going to read the text tonight, uh, this morning. Um, for, about, for about 10 years, I was a college pastor at the campus of the University of Oregon. And then about 10 years after that, uh, I was uh, a, a church planter uh, in Portland, Oregon, in the heart of the urban core of Portland. Planted a church called Theophilus, which is still there to this day and doing remarkable work. This was all before I transitioned to the life of the academy, where I'm a professor. I teach Bible and theology at Bushnell University in Eugene, Oregon. And for that 10-year period when I was a church planter, I, I got this email about five years into the church plan. I got an email by a guy named Phil. I want to tell you about Phil. So I get this email from Phil, and Phil uh, wants to meet for coffee. The subject line said something like this, would love to plug into the church. I don't know how he had found our church. Uh, I was a pastor. I didn't know how he found us. The demigods of you know, Google somehow told him that he should come to our church. So he emailed and said, I'd love to connect and find a way to plug into the church. So I'd love to meet. So we're meeting in my office. We both got a cup of coffee. And he tells me a story. Um, Phil, and I'm changing some of the details for the sake of anonymity, but Phil was uh, raised in kind of conservative uh, middle America. He was raised in a, an awesome kind of Christian home, loved Jesus, loved the Bible, loved the church, uh, kind of Kansas evangelical home. 
And he had uh, graduated from high school and gotten a tech job in Portland. So he had flown to Portland and he's now living in Portland. And he is just on, this is something we used to say in the 90s, but he was just on fire for Jesus. He was just on fire and he wanted to be on mission in Portland. He wanted people to know God. He wanted to reach his, his neighborhood for Jesus. He was just like, he was just like an evangelist in Babylon. So excited. And so he met with me and goes, I want to be part of the church. I want to be part of the small group. I want to be on the sound team, all this stuff. I was jazzed. We, we needed volunteers. God's wills were aligning at the same moment. He wanted to come. We needed him. I was super happy. And and we were kind of strategizing, well, here's what you can do. You, you know, got to get a roommate. We, we'll get you a part of a small group and all this good stuff. We're pl- finding ways to plug them in. And we said, we sort of said, uh, I'll see you on Sunday, start coming to church. And we said goodbye. And he started coming to church for maybe a couple weeks. And then I just began to notice that Phil disappeared. And it was almost, and I, I wish I, this wasn't true, but as a pastor, when you pastor, you know, a larger congregation, it's impossible to remember everybody. And I kind of forgot about Phil. And so I get, about a year later, I get an email and it's Phil again, almost exactly a year later. And Phil wants to meet again. And we're sitting in my office and we're, we both got coffee, not the same cup, but similar kind of coffee. And we're sitting in my office and he, I, I just noticed when he walked into my office, he looked totally different. He, he like, he had, he, when he came to Portland, he looked like Kansas. Now he really looked like Portland. You know, he had like tattoos on his tattoos, of his tattoos. You know, he had like uh, tighter jeans. That, you know, this was back in the early thousands. His jeans were extremely, they were very tight. And, um, you know, he, he had like the classic Portland look. And he totally looked different. And he sits down and he, t- and he says, do you want to hear what's happened over the last year? And I said, oh, yes, tell me what's happened. And he tells me the story, one year. In one year, so after our first meeting, he had met a a guy that he worked with at the tech firm uh, by the name of Charles. And Phil needed a roommate, and so he moved in with Charles. They became really good friends. Charles had a really interesting story. Charles had been raised a Mormon and hadn't gone on his mission trip and was in a philosophy class in college and had become an atheist. Uh, And Charles uh, was brilliant. The guy knew everything about you know, the Bible. He knew everything about, quote, what was apparently wrong with the Bible. He knew everything. He was just brilliant. He was like this reverse evangelist. And they would sit up at night and just talk about, about faith, Christianity, the Bible. And, and, and Phil just noticed that Charles had a lot of really good questions that Phil just didn't have any answers to. And they would just sit up all night long and just talk. And, and Phil, who's sitting in my office, he's like, here's what the part that was really hard is he said, this guy who's an atheist, my, my roommate, the problem with him is how stinking nice he is. Like he's just so kind and generous. And he says, here's a problem. Like when you've been raised in a Christian home where they make atheists sound like people that like barbecue kittens and stuff, <laughs> you know, like they're just horrible people and like mean and like, uh, and when, when you're taught that and then you meet one that's like really generous, it messes with everything that you think. And they would just sit up at night. And, and Phil says, my life became, I just, there were all these questions I just didn't have answers to. Nobody in my youth group had ever talked to me about how the Bible had been put together. And so he says, my life became one big podcast binge. I would, I literally, I would just literally listen to podcasts all day long, two times speed. That was my life. And then he says, and then on top of that, um, I have these, these coworkers that I work with at the tech firm, some gay and lesbian coworkers who have been really hurt by the church and they were telling me about their experience. And I was like, I don't know what to do with that. Like, I don't wanna be a part of a church that like hurts people. And then on top of that, he, he starts talking about how the election had just happened and Donald Trump had just become the president. And he goes, I, it's, I'm, it's horrible because I live in Portland and everybody hates, I mean, hates him here. But back home, like all my friend, family and friends on Facebook are like saying like, he's the greatest thing next to sliced bread. And he's like, I don't know what to do. Like all my Facebook people love Trump and all the people in Portland want to kill him. And he's like, I don't know what to do. It just makes me so anxious and I don't know how to talk to anybody. And then he said, and then he says, and I've got all this anxiety and I found, and he goes, and I found something really great. He says, I found weed. And he goes, that's awesome. Cause the anxiety thing is like, man, it's just helping me sleep at night. And also, and he's going, he's going through all these different things. 
And I just noticed, at the, he's sort of laughing about the weed thing. And I'm kind of awkward, you know, as a pastor, I'm like, ha, 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 you know. Awkwardly, you know, I celebrate the end of anxiety. I don't know if I'd go that direction, but I like the end of anxiety. And all of a sudden he said that, and I just noticed the room, that it's almost like the temperature in the room got colder. And I just saw all of a sudden his face change. And he says, you know, I, I know that's kind of funny, but and about this point, a tear just starts slowly cascading down his face. And he says to me, he says, the truth of the matter is this. I love God, but I have all these questions. And then he says to me, a sentence that has haunted me. He said to me, I want to be a Christian, but I've got all these questions. Am I still allowed to be a Christian? And the minute he said that, I knew I was not talking to a person. I was talking to a generation of people who like want to love God, but, they, but, they, but, but, but if they're totally candid, all the things of the world, friends, systemic injustice, everything, like it's all like what, how can I still love God with all that? And that's what I wanna talk about today. Acts chapter two. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Verse two, suddenly, and by the way, in your Bible translation, that word suddenly, if you have your Bible, circle that word suddenly in your translation of the Bible or highlight it or whatever app you've got, like whatever you do with your thing. Just mark that word. Suddenly, suddenly, a sound like the blowing of violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Frig Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Listen, look at this. Cretans and Arabs. Cretans and Arabs. And we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? Verse 13. Some, however, made fun of them and then just said, nah, they're just drunk. And, and by the way, uh, this is nine in the morning, nine in the morning when this happens. Um, and again, as a university professor from Eugene, Oregon, I can say, uh, it seems funny to me that people could be shocked that somebody could be drunk at nine in the morning, <laughs> um, having never been to Eugene, Oregon, apparently. Um, but there, immediately after this story, we are told by Luke, that after this story, Peter stands up and preaches. And Luke says, 3,000, 3,000 people get saved right then and there. 3,000. This is, we, we, this, this, this event in the Bible that Luke tells us is called, we call it Pentecost. And Pentecost, it literally, the word Pentecost simply means 50th. And I'll explain where that comes from in just a second. But the, the Pentecost story in Acts 2 is such a critical moment. Christians all over the world are reading this text this morning. And this story of Acts 2, Pentecost Sunday, is the day the Spirit enables, empowers, and fills the church for mission. The book of Acts is not the book of the apostles. It's not the Acts of the apostles. It is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts is the story of the Spirit filling God's people with power and authority. And, and this story of the Spirit filling the church, one of my favorite theologians calls it the birthday of the church. Um, one of my favorite bloggers 
um, it says that Pentecost is the day the church goes viral. That something is transformed on this day. And the church now has the embodied presence of Jesus within them. There was a guy years ago named Roger Stronstad. He was a charismatic theologian who wrote a book called The Charismatic Theology of St. Luke. And he says, it's, it's really interesting because the way Luke has told his story is he wrote the gospel of Luke first and then he wrote the story of the early church. And the, when you look at both of the stories, they're almost the exact same length. Luke and Acts are almost the exact same length. And the reason they're the exact same length, Stronstad argues, is because they were intended to be read t- together. That the story of Jesus and the story of the church cannot be separated. You cannot have Jesus without the church. And the minute you have the church without Jesus, you just got a club. You can't have one without the other. And the reason Luke has told both these stories together is because the spirit in Luke is on Jesus. But in Acts, the spirit is now on the church. Do you remember that moment when Elijah comes to Elisha when Elisha comes to Elijah and says, Elijah, I want the spirit that's in you to be on me. Would you give me a double portion of the spirit? And Elijah says, uh, sure. And he goes. And when he ascends to heaven, Elisha receives the cloak of Elijah. How many miracles did Elijah do? Seven. How many miracles does Elisha do? Fourteen. And the spirit has transferred from Elijah to Elisha. And in the same way, the spirit has gone from Jesus to you. Now, the guy who told this story is a doctor. And, and I, want, I told you this, I told you this, uh, that word suddenly is a really important word for Luke. He uses the word suddenly, he uses the word suddenly 10 times in the book of Acts. 10 times. And interestingly enough, every time Luke uses the word suddenly, it is always in reference to something that the Spirit does. And, And the big idea here is this. You cannot script or manipulate or coerce the Spirit to do something. It's always a suddenly. It's never something you can make happen. You can't put the Spirit of God on a run sheet or the liturgy and force it to happen. Just in the same way, I can't reproduce a revival from the first service in the second. We have to have a suddenly. And when Luke tells a story, he has 10 suddenlies. And I want you to see, I want you, for the person in the room who's wrestling, they're like Phil. You've got questions, doubts, you're struggling with your faith. I want you to see seven, I want you to see four, I want you to see four suddenlies in this story. I want you to see four suddenlies. The first suddenly I want you to see is this. The first suddenly is this, is that the spirit of God always hovers over the chaos. The spirit of God always hovers over the chaos. Now I said, the the guy who wrote this, let's get a little historical here because the guy who wrote this, the guy who wrote this book, his name is Luke. He's, He's a Gentile, he wasn't a Jew. And by the way, it's really interesting that the majority of the New Testament was written by a Gentile who was not a Jew. And the fact that the earliest Jews were willing to read texts written by a Gentile speaks volumes about how their hearts have been changed by Jesus. But the majority of the New Testament is written by Gentile, who, by the way, his occupation was he was a doctor. Okay. Now, by the way, I'll tell you, okay, I'm a doctor too. I have a PhD in theology. I can tell you this. You would not want me in the room if you were about to have a baby. You want a real doctor for that. But if you want to talk about the ontology of John Calvin's Trinity, you are in great hands. <laughs> Luke is a real doctor. A birth children doctor. A guy who's in the room who can diagnose things. Now I can tell you this. My dad, my dad was a doctor. He was a medical physician. He delivered babies for a long time and then became a family physician. And you know what I've learned about doctors? is doctors, <laughs> doctors see things that most people would never care about. They see, they, they, because, why? Because they're good at diagnosing things, right? Their job is to like 
make connections, like to see, oh, okay, like you don't eat this and this happens and there's a reason you're sick. A, a doctor sees things that most people don't see. And the guy who's writing, writing this is a doctor. And I wanna show you how we can tell he's a doctor. And it's, it's by looking at how he describes the Holy Spirit because it is very clear that when Luke is telling the story of the Holy Spirit, he has in mind the entire narrative of the Old Testament. When you go back, and, and here's one of the things you see. In the Bible, the Holy Spirit is always, this is fascinating, the, so, the location of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is always hovering it's really interesting, like location. So location matters. When you talk about space and location and geography, for example, when people say they want to, in the Bible, people are always going up to Jerusalem. They never go down to Jerusalem. There's a reason. It is really high. But the Jews believed that Jerusalem was the closest place to heaven. So when, it, when you go up to Jerusalem, you're ascending, you're getting close to God's throne. For those in the room who were raised in the church who think that as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, you're going to go to heaven, you have, missed, you have messed up the location. You do not go to heaven. None of you are going to heaven. Heaven is coming to you. In fact, John's description of heaven is that heaven hovers and comes down like a bride. So in the Bible, location is a really important deal. And when you go to the very beginning of the Bible, when God created the world in Genesis 1, it says that God created this thing called the tohu vavahu, the chaos, the wild and the waste, one translator put it. And the spirit of God, the ruach of God, hovers, the spirit of God hovers over the chaos. In that image of hover, that is not going to be the only time that you see that image of hover. In fact, in the story of Noah's, of the, in, with the flood, it is the, the, the ruach, the spirit or the wind that blows the waters away, that's hovering over the water. When Israel wanders through the desert, the spirit hovers over God's people. Whenever the tabernacle is described, the spirit comes upon the tabernacle. Whenever the Ark of the Covenant is referenced, the spirit hovers over the tabernacle. That word hover over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Just like a plane is hovering above now, the spirit hovers. And it's, it's, it's not a mistake that when Luke is telling his story of Mary, the mother of Jesus, that he says that upon Mary, and he uses the word episkiazo in Greek. He says that the spirit episkiazos over Mary. And it turns out the word episkiazo is the Greek word for the Hebrew word hover. That the same spirit that hovered over creation is now hovering over Mary to give birth to this child. And then when Jesus comes up out of the waters of baptism, what happens? The spirit comes down upon Jesus. And now the spirit of God is doing the same thing on the church. The spirit has always been doing, hovering over the chaotic waters. Now, again, Luke, when he tells the story, no doubt he has so many things in mind. For example, the fact that uh, Luke, when he describes the baptism of Jesus, it says that the dove fell, came upon Jesus. And the rabbis used to believe that the dove was the image of the hovering over the chaotic waters. Uh, Luke is probably drawing on that image of the spirit that's hovering like a dove over the chaotic All this stuff, friends, all this to say, the doctor is in. And when Luke tells the story, he knows exactly what he's doing because it turns out Acts 2, with the story you just read, is not the only time in the Bible that you have a Pentecost. The 50th. What is that? It turns out there is another Pentecost. This is not the only Pentecost. This is actually in Acts 2, Pentecost number 2. There's another Pentecost back in the book of Exodus. And in order to understand what the doctor's doing here, you gotta go back to the Exodus story. St stick with me for a minute. If you're willing to get Bible nerd with me for a moment, your mind will get blown. Go all the way back to Exodus. You remember the story. Israel has been enslaved in Egypt for 430 years, and there's a ruler 
There is a ruler of Israel, ruler of Egypt that is enslaving Israel. And his name is, he's just called a Pharaoh. By the way, it never gives us his name, just his title. He is a Pharaoh. And it's interesting that the Bible will not name Pharaoh, but will name uh, the Hebrew midwives and give their names. So Pharaoh is not named, but the, but the nobodies in the story are named. But Pharaoh has oppressed Israel for 430 years. And God raises up this man by the name of Moses. Uh, in Hebrew, his name is Moshe. And Moshe simply means to draw out. And it's a reference to that moment when Moses was a little kid and he was put in a river, in the river Nile, and he was drawn out of the Nile. He was drawn out. That's the word, that's the word uh, Moshe, to draw out. And God raises this man, Moses, and he says to Moses, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to go to a Pharaoh and I want you to confront him. And you're gonna go and you're gonna tell Pharaoh, let my people go a three-day distance into the wilderness so they can worship me. And so Moses, his first response, of course, is like, do you realize I have a speech impediment and I stutter and frankly, my brother would be better at this, which is the response many of us have for the call of God on our life. And God says, I don't care, I'm sending you. And so he sends Moses and Moses goes time and again, you know it, 10 different times to Pharaoh to confront him. And Pharaoh will not listen. And after the ninth one, God comes to Moses and says, okay, last time. And he says to Moses, you're gonna go to Pharaoh and you're gonna say that if you don't let my people go, the firstborn of all of Egypt will die. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh doesn't listen. And so one night, God, after that, comes to Moses and says to Moses, Moses, go and tell all the people that tonight you're gonna take a lamb, a lamb, and you're gonna kill the lamb. But here's the deal. Don't break the bones of the lamb, God says. You're gonna take the lamb and you're gonna take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost of the home. And any home that has the blood of the lamb on it, the angel will pass over that home. That's where we get the word Passover from, is the image of the angel passing over the homes with the blood on the doorpost. And that evening, they're gonna, you're gonna go out into the wilderness and you're gonna be free and you're gonna worship me in the desert. And they go. And that evening, the Israelites slaughter a lamb. They don't break its bone. They put the blood on the doorpost and any home that had blood goes out. And by the way, I had a student who once said to me, um, that evening when they leave, the firstborn of all of Egypt do die. It's true, it's in the Bible, and it's hard to read. I don't enjoy it. It's in the Bible, and it's true, but it's hard. But I had a student who said to me, I could never believe in a God that would do something like that. And my response was, friend, you have never, ever been to a Passover feast. Because it turns out when you go to a Passover feast, there's a moment in the feast when you've got all this food on the table, and there's a glass of wine. It turns out, by the way, Passover meals have a ton of wine. Jews know how to party, baby. And they take the wine and you take your finger and you dip your finger in the wine and you sprinkle it on a plate 10 times to represent the 10 plagues. But here's the rule at the Passover. Whenever you sprinkle 10 times, you never lick your finger as a sign to remember that God never enjoys the death of anyone. God grieved that night. And that evening, Israel left and the firstborn of all of Egypt died. They finally come to this place called Mount Sinai where they're gonna be for a whole year. And God says to Moses, Moses, come up to the mountain. I wanna give you a gift for God's people. It's interesting. They had just done the 10 plagues for Egypt and God is now going to give the 10 commandments. The 10 best ways, my wife calls them. And Moses brings the law down. By the way, it says that when Moses is on the mountain, there's an earthquake, the place shakes. He goes up the mountain, he brings the law down to all of God's people who are down below and guess what they're doing? They're worshiping golden calves. And what's going on here? It's just ironic. They have just been freed from slavery and now they're putting themselves back in slavery. N.T. Wright says in one of his books, it's never hard for God to get Israel out of Egypt, but it's really hard for God to get Egypt out of Israel. And that day when Moses comes down with the 10 commandments and he sees Israel worshiping a golden calf, Moses is ticked. And that day in Exodus, 3,000 Israelites were killed as judgment. That was Pentecost number one. 
And the word Pentecost simply means 50th. It is 50 days after Passover. The Passover is the death of the lamb. Pentecost is the giving of the law. And like I told you, the guy who wrote this story is a doctor. And when you compare Pentecost 1 in Exodus with Pentecost 2 in the book of Acts, all of a sudden you start seeing the doctors in the house. Because in Pentecost 1, back in Exodus, Pentecost came after Israel had been freed from Egypt. Pentecost 2, the giving of the Spirit, comes after Jesus has destroyed the works of Satan, the new Pharaoh. The first Pentecost took place 50 days after the death of the Lamb. The second Pentecost in Acts 2 takes place 50 days after the death of the Lamb of God, Jesus. The first Pentecost comes after the the lambs had been slaughtered, but you didn't break the bones of the lamb. And the second Pentecost comes after the death of the lamb of God, who the gospels go out of his way, say upon the cross, his bones were not broken. The first Pentecost comes after the mountain shakes up on Mount Sinai. The second Pentecost comes when the whole upper room is shaken by the power of God. The first Pentecost happens after the death death of the firstborn of Egypt, but now the second Pentecost comes after the death of God's only son, Jesus Christ. The first comes after the giving of the law. The second comes after the giving of the spirit. In the first All of God's people are acting like pagans. But in the second, the pagans are starting to act like God's people. In the first, the people of God used fire to make their own God. In the second, God is using fire to make his own people. And in the first, 3,000 people are killed. But in the second, 3,000 are saved. The doctor is in. (laughs) I have walked with hundreds of fills in my life. And more often than not, when I'm sitting with a fill who has all those questions, all those things that they're wondering about, and they ask the big questions, the right questions, they're asking good questions my immediate response is to want to give an answer. But when I read this story, I'm reminded that the person who is wrestling with doubt and maybe even going through experiences like deconstruction, that when they're asking those questions, more often than not, it is not actually an answer that they're looking for. And when you go to the book of Job, Right, the story of Job, Job loses everything in Job chapter one and two. And for the next couple chapters, for the next 35 chapters, Job is prepping a speech for God. God, why did you let this happen? Why have you allowed this to happen to me? God, why is this? Why did you allow my family to die? All this stuff. He has this speech for God. And finally, in Job 37 and 38, God comes to Job and Job has got his speech ready to go. And when you read Job 37, 38, it's hilarious. Job doesn't get one word in. There is not one line out of Job's mouth. In fact, Job doesn't have any questions for God. All the questions are from God to Job. Oh, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Oh, interesting. Hmm. Were you there when I created the Leviathan? Yeah, no. Were you there when I set the sunset in the sky? And you learn something from the book of Job. Job is not an explanation of suffering. There's no explanation of suffering in Job. The point of Job is not that God gives answers to sufferers. The point of the book of Job is that God gives himself to sufferers. I wonder if you're looking for an answer. And I wonder if that's not what you really need. Because on Pentecost... Pentecost is not the celebration of God giving the church an answer. It is the celebration of God giving the church himself. And you have the power of God inside of you. 
as the Pharisees would teach us, it is possible to have all the answers and not have God. But friends, the call of Jesus is not to have all the answers. It's to have God. And you have him. The second suddenly I want you to see is not only does the spirit hover over the chaos, the chaos of our lives, but secondly, the spirit shatters any vestige, any sense of self-doubt. And, and that is, what I mean by that are those moments in our life when we question, we question whether God is actually doing anything inside of us. Which for somebody walking through doubt and deconstruction, this is a real reality. Has God abandoned me? Is God still with me? Is God here? Is he there? Has he left me? And I want you to imagine, right? In this story, the Holy Spirit comes on the church and look at what Peter does. Peter stands up and preaches and 3,000 people get saved. Peter, Peter, the fisherman. He didn't go to Bible college. He doesn't have Logos Bible software. He doesn't, have, he doesn't know the original languages. Peter, who by the way, just a few days earlier had done what? Just a few days earlier had completely denied Jesus. Talk about total failure. And it, it, it is interesting, denial of Jesus. <laughs> Peter and Judas, you remember Judas? Judas Iscariot? Judas and Peter, they have one thing in common. You know what the difference between the two of them is? They both have one thing in common. They both deny Jesus. There's only one difference. One was cool with being forgiven. <laughs> but Peter denied Jesus. He had denied Jesus. And, he, and that guy <laughs> is the first guy to preach. How is that possible? There was a philosopher years ago by the name of Albert Camus. He was an atheist, but he was a really interesting atheist. He was one of the most interesting atheists because he didn't believe in God, but he believed in hell. He didn't believe there's a God, but he did believe in hell. And Camus believed that hell were those moments in our life when our least favorite sense of identity hangs over our head and we can't get rid of it. Those moments when we can't get shake the fact that we're unfaithful husbands, we're porn addicts, we're drug addicts, we're, we're pastors, we're bad pastors, we're disengaged pastors, we're guys who can't commit, we're girls who commit too fast, we're, uh, we're overweight, we're underweight, we're pretty, we're not, we're rich, we're fishermen, we're mom of dead messiahs, we're tax collectors, we're farmers. Camus believed that hell was living with shame over your head. He didn't believe in God, but he believed in hell. And I can only imagine for Peter, who denied Jesus three times, that on some level after those days, I wonder if he was living in hell. Living in shame. He was the guy who turned his back on Jesus. What happened? <laughs> and honestly, the only thing that we know that happened is the exact same thing that happened to Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus is baptized? He's 30 years old, by the way. We know almost nothing from Jesus' childhood. We know about his baptism, uh, but before that, we know about basically his birth and one story where his parents accidentally leave him in the temple and, and he gets lost. Those are the stories we have of Jesus' childhood. And that's actually a really good argument for why the New Testament is authentic because if I were Mary and Joseph, I would not have allowed that story into the Bible. But it's in the Bible and it's evidence of the fact that the Bible's apparently willing to totally throw Jesus' parents under the bus. They lost me, right? I don't know. So anyways, all that to say, we don't know anything from his childhood, but at 30 years old, something happens in Jesus' life that releases him into ministry. He is baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And as he comes up out of the water, he hears the voice of the Father in heaven say, you're my son with whom I love and with whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit falls on Jesus and he is now anointed by the dove from heaven and is going to do all the awesome stuff you know about. But here's what's interesting. Jesus doesn't do any of the cool stuff, the teachings, the miracles, the resurrections. Jesus doesn't do any of it until he is baptized by the Spirit of God. And after Jesus is baptized by the Spirit and the Father says, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased. 
Jesus goes, goes and does all the cool stuff. I need you to see the order of this. It's gonna change the way you read the Bible. The order of Jesus' spirit baptism is really interesting. Because when Jesus comes up out of the water, the image is that the heavens ripped open and the spirit comes down on Jesus. That story, right after that, the heavens rip and the spirit comes. <laughs> One of the next stories is Jesus is in a home and some of these guys have a sick dude they wanna bring to Jesus. There's not enough room in the home. And so they try to get him and they can't. So what do they do? They go up on the roof and what do they do to the roof? They rip it open. You go from the heavens being ripped open to a roof being ripped open. And I think what's going on is this, is the minute you open yourself up, the minute you open yourself up to the Holy Spirit, you become a candidate for God to drop a lot of sick people around you. And that is this, when you are filled with the Spirit, God doesn't do it accidentally. He gave it to you so that you would be a power of heaven here on earth. The order matters and it equally matters to notice that the father says to Jesus, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased before Jesus did anything cool. Not after. You see, too many of us, too many of us have bought into a false gospel that says once I get over my porn addiction, once I stop smoking weed, once I get my devotion life right, once I pray enough, once I start going to church, once I start serving in the children's ministry, and once I start tithing, then God will say, I love you and I'm proud of you. And I gotta tell you, that is not the gospel. That is not good news. That is fake good news. The good news of Jesus is before you do a lick of good, the Father looks you in the eyes and says, you're my kid. And I love you. Why can Peter preach that message? Because the same spirit that spoke over Jesus and the same father that said you are loved is now over Peter. Don't you dare. <clears throat> Go faster. Some of you live in such deep self-doubt that because of what you did on Friday night or what you did last week or what you did when you were 16, live in this existential place of hell that says you will never leave your brokenness. And I declare the word of Jesus over you that if the spirit of the Lord has come, you are free. <laughs> Friends, the fact that Peter preaches if a sinner can't preach the gospel, who is left? Who is left? God loves working with broken people. And if you live in this hell of brokenness where you think God can't use you, tell that to Peter. Thirdly, the Spirit not only shatters Peter's self-hatred, self self-doubt, but thirdly, the Spirit actually begins the process of healing the community. Healing the community. And the, you'll notice when I read Acts 2, I intentionally read really quietly the phrase that in, in the presence of the Holy Spirit coming in the church, all these nations are listed, which by the way, all the nations listed were all nations that had been conquered by Rome. And the image here is that Luke is saying, you may be conquered by Rome, but you are freed by Jesus. And he intentionally lists Cretans and Arabs. And did you notice he put them right next to each other? Cretans and Arabs, right next to each other. Now in the first century, there were a lot of nations that hated each other. There were a lot of nations that went to war. There were a lot of nations that, you know, they had skirmishes, but there were a few nations that didn't just hate each other. They hated each other on a core level. Total vitriol, othering, cutting off. And it turns out 
in the first century, guess who hated each other with that kind of hatred? Cretans and Arabs. And so when Luke is telling the spirit coming on the church, he is not a fool. He is saying in the presence of the spirit, the enemies, they're standing next to each other. (laughs) They're right there together in the same section of the same sentence. Cretans and Arabs, they're next to each other. Did you notice that the spirit Did you notice that the tongues, that image, tongues of fire? What a weird image. Like, why not like an explosion or something? Or like, I'm trying to think of something. Why not lightning? Tongues? (laughs) Why tongues? Now, I have my theory about this. It's interesting. I mean, why, why a dove, for heaven's sake? It would have been cool if, like, a beaver came along, <laughs> got on Jesus, and, like, whispered in his ear, I'm with you. Right? Or, like, even, like, an eagle would have been cool, right? Like, ah, coming down on Jesus, and he puts his arm up and, you know, does the thing. Like, why a dove? Why a dove? Why a tongue? What is with a tongue? Why are there tongues on heads? Here's my theory. The very first time in the Bible we are introduced to God's mouth is in Genesis 1. When God creates Adam, Adam, and he puts him in the garden out of the dust, and God, it says, comes, and what part of Adam's body does Adam, does God breathe into to give him life? His nose. God breathes into his nostrils. He puts his mouth on Adam's face and gives him life. God puts his face next to our face. And so when Luke tells us the spirit comes, is it all that shocking that apparently God's mouth is back? And the face of God is a really interesting thing because in the Old Testament, whenever people saw God's face, what happened to them? They died. Because people couldn't handle God's face. Because Jack Nicholson was right. You literally cannot handle the truth. (laughs) When people see God's face in the Old Testament, they die. What's interesting is now that Jesus has come, when we see God's face, he dies. And now apparently God is all over again giving us his face, the tongue. And it rests on their head. It actually does not say that it goes in. It rests on them. Now think about it, think about it. I, I've actually looked at ancient Christian art around this and it's interesting because they actually literally depict the like, tongues on heads. And if it's resting on your head, again, just do the math here. But if you've got a tongue resting on your head, resting on the crown of your head and you look up, what can't you see? I'll, I'll turn sideways so you can see it. What can't I see? I can't see the tongue. In fact, the only way I can see the tongue is what do I need? A mirror. I need somebody else to say, I said, bro, the, bro, there's a tongue on your head. <laughs> I, can't, I can't see it on my own head. I need somebody else to say, dude, dude, there is a tongue of fire on your head. And I need somebody to be able to look at and say, dude, I gotta tell you, I've known you for a long time. I ain't never seen this. There is a flaming tongue on your head. the hardest person to see the work of God is yourself. It is always the hardest person to see the work of God. This is an invitation to the healing work of Jesus in the community of God. Because when the spirit comes, we need each other to see the tongues on our heads. I can't see it on my own. I need to see everybody else's. And I gotta say, in this room today, there are a ton of tongues on heads. You probably can't see them. The Spirit of God takes Cretans and Arabs and he puts them next to each other in the context of the gospel. 
And in a world where you and I are all struggling with issues of like, how in the world do we do community when there's churches that like worship republicanism and churches that worship progressivism and churches that worship America and churches that worship nothing and churches that do this and churches that do that. Like we live in this world of all of these communities that have replaced Jesus with anything. And what we need in this moment is history is not churches of churches of Cretans and churches of Arabs. We need a work of God where Cretans and Arabs together have come together in the name of Jesus and the empowerment of the Spirit and put aside their differences and said together, we're on mission with Jesus. There must be, if you, if you are struggling right now to be a part of church, that's why we need you. I don't know about you, I struggle with being a part of a church where I fear that I'm being complicit with injustice and wrong. I don't wanna be a part of a system that hurts people, but I gotta say this, you know what? Jesus, Jesus went to synagogue. Let me translate that, Jesus went to church. Do you think Jesus didn't know the problems? He knew the problems. You are here because there are people in this room that Jesus loves with all of his heart, and we need you. Please don't replace God's people with a podcast. Please don't replace each other with Siri. We need each other. If you're struggling with doubt, you're struggling with deconstruction, I can say one thing. Do everything in your power to drag yourself here. And the last thing we see is that we see that not only does the Spirit create community and healing in community, but fourthly, the Spirit, the Spirit redeems power. The Spirit redeems power. When the disciples in this upper room are filled with the Spirit, some of them begin to speak with other tongues. And, and actually, this is a unique kind of tongue. They don't, they're not speaking like a prayer language kind of tongue. They're speaking what we call xenolalia, which is they are preaching the gospel in foreign languages, all these languages that they didn't speak. And so all these people down below, they like hear the gospel in their own tongue. They hear it in their own language. And they're like, wait a second, where did you guys learn our language? But because of the spirit, they can now speak the languages of all the people down below. And the big idea here is now the gospel, now the gospel at Pentecost has been released into every tribe and tongue. You know what this is? It is the reversal of that other story that you know in the Bible, where God comes to scatter languages. This is the reversal of Babel. Yeah. Now God is not scattering tongues. God is now giving, giving the tongues to his people so that the church of God can now speak all the languages. There is actually, catch this, there is a Pentecostal Christian community on the East Coast where people, deaf people speak tongues in sign language. Every tongue. And the idea here, folks, whether you believe in tongues or not, I know I just stepped on some stuff there. Um, the point here <laughs> is that the Spirit is now enabling us to speak in every tribe and tongue. And the disciples who are in this room are speaking the gospel for people down below. And here's what's shocking. They don't even know the languages they are preaching. <laughs> Let me translate for you what that means. It means they have been given power by God to preach, but the gospel is now in the hearts and minds of people that they don't have authority over. And it is gonna go through the whole world and transform the universe. It is said by Stuart Murray that in the year 100, there were 20,000 Christians, and in the year 300, there were 20 million Christians. Not bad church growth. And it is because the gospel has now gone forth in every tribe, every tongue, every language. And the reality is that the disciples got to speak the languages that they didn't even know. And there's a really big idea that I need you to hear. 
God wants to give you power, but God wants to give you power, but he is not going to give you control. I saw this happen once. Uh, this was about 15 years ago. I was finishing preaching at our church in Portland and this guy comes up to me, introduced himself. Uh, I had never met him before. It was his first time at church. And he comes up to me and he introduced himself. I just finished preaching. So I'm all, you know, I got preacher's breath. I'm not feeling very good. And he comes out, he wants to chat. And, and he introduced himself. His name is Fidel. He's from Cuba, ironically. And he, I ask him a story. I say, tell me your story. What's going on? And he's, he goes, well, I'm not a Christian, but my Christian friends brought me to church today. And I turn around and I'll be, true, there's a group of like his Christian friends that dragged him to church that day. And they're all like just standing there like waiting, please do something to get our friends saved. You know, <laughs> the, they're, they're, they're like, please, please let this be good. Please let this be good. So Fidel comes forward and I say, Fidel, what's your story? And he goes, well, here's the deal. I'm not a Christian, uh, but I bet you're a praying man and I wanna ask you to pray for me. And I said, what am I praying for? And he goes, well, I was at a party two weeks ago and somebody threw chemicals, a chemical on my face and I have lost vision in my right eye. And he goes, I'm not a Christian, but I know you're a praying man and I wanna ask if you'd pray for me. And I said, I'd be happy to pray for you. So I'm about to lay my hands on Fidel and pray for him. And one of our elders by the name of Rick comes up to him and he's gonna come pray with us. And we put our hands on, 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 on Fidel to begin to pray. Now, when I pray for people to be healed, which I prayed for a lot of people to be healed, um, when I pray for people to be healed, I'm like super introverted and like calm and like hyper theologically accurate, right? <laughs> so like when I pray for people to be healed, I'm like, God, would you just, would you heal? And if you don't, you're still sovereign, you know, like, and we love you still when you don't heal, God. And the person's like, are you praying in faith or like giving footnotes? <laughs> Anyways, but I'm like super sensitive about that stuff. So I pray this prayer, this sweet introvert like seminary prayer. And my friend Rick, who's an elder on church, he, he is like, he is a full on Pentecostal. And Rick, I finished my cute little prayer and Rick just takes his hand and he puts it right on Fidel's face. <laughs> right on his eye. And he just like, he just goes for it. In the name of Jesus. I mean, he just like full on Pentecostal, like all in charismatic prayer. In the name of Jesus, would you heal him? I can tell as Rick is praying that uh, Fidel starts to cry. And I pause the conversation, I pause the prayer and I say, Fidel, are you okay? And he goes, I just feel like, I feel like I wanna know God. And I said, yeah, you do. And, and so I prayed with him. He gave life to Jesus right there on the spot. And he finishes the prayer and then, and then Rick gets back into the prayer and he goes, in Jesus' name. And he just prays and he finishes the prayer. I'm, I was standing right there, okay? So I'm not making this up. He finishes the prayer. He takes his sweaty hand off his face. And Fidel is standing right there and Fidel's eyes are closed and he opens his eyes. And this is literally what he does. He opens his eyes and he goes. I can see. And at that moment, his eye had been healed. He falls to the ground. I turn over, his Christian friends are freaking out. <laughs> you know, what just happened? They run over and see it's like a work of God. And they're like, they're like, finally it worked. You know, like we, we finally bringing like the guy to church, like worked. And Fidel, we pick him up. And in the span of five minutes, this guy went from the kingdom of hell and darkness to the kingdom of Jesus. And his sight was restored. And I tell you that story. I want to be cautious. I tell you that story. There have been times that I prayed for people and that has not happened you know, but I got to tell you, when it does happen, you preach on it. <laughs> and, 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 and you tell a story because it doesn't happen that much. I have prayed for people and they died in 10 minutes. So I take the wins when I get them. Okay. Some of you are like, don't pray for me. <laughs> don't, 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 please don't pray for me. Anyways, this guy's life was transformed and he stands up. And we, for the next hour, just celebrate, weeping together. This, this guy's life is transformed. And I remember standing there watching and he is walking away <laughs> and he's leaving. And here's the moral of the story. <laughs> I've never seen Fidel again. 
<laughs> he actually is serving at another church in Portland, which kind of angers me. Because <laughs> we needed volunteers, you know? Like, <laughs> you know what I learned from that story? God gives us power, but not control. And here's what I want, I want you to hear. I say, maybe, maybe this is actually a moment that the Holy Spirit wants to speak to a few of you. Some of you who are walking through doubt, you've deconstructed some things, have walked through that because there has been a Christian in your life who has used power for the purpose of control. And it has really hurt. And you're sitting here and you're wondering, where is God for me? And I want you to hear me say that whenever somebody used the power of God to control you, that was not God. And God weeps with you. But that was not God. And God, the only control that we are given in the Holy Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. It's the only control. And if you, if you have been wounded by the church, I want you to remember that so is Jesus. But he's still in the room. And we need people who are not willing to let the grave be the end of their story. The same resurrection Jesus that was in him is on you. I wanna close with this. Can I show you, there's a picture, look at this. Oh my gosh. Do you see that hot guy over here? I do too. Do you see the sweetheart next to him? That's my wife, Quinn. Do you see this guy over to the right? That's Elliot. That's my 10-year-old son. Uh, the woman standing next to my wife is Faith. Do you see the guy with the wee shirt? That's Phil. I took this picture about six months ago. Phil, I walked with Phil for seven years through doubt and deconstruction of ripping his faith apart and he has remained faithful to Jesus. He just graduated from Portland State University and wants to be a psychologist for Jesus. I, I don't tell you this story to put a bow tie on this story. I tell you this to say, doubt and deconstruction are not the end. I want to close with this. I've gone too long. Can you put the tomato up? People are excited for God's word today. All right, I live in Oregon. And when you live in Oregon, you have to find some reason to live in Oregon. <laughs> because, because it rains like 900 days out of the year uh, where I live. And this is it. This is, what, this is, this is why we live there. <laughs> we grow these tomatoes. We have an urban farm. Look at those tomatoes. Have you ever had an Oregon tomato, a summer Oregon tomato? Good Lord. You can't eat these and be an atheist. They are so good and godly. In the summer times, we grow these tomatoes and we have people over for dinner. And it will be very common that we'll have somebody for dinner who I will take these tomatoes, I'll slice them and put a little salt on them and I'll serve them. And they'll say to me, I don't like tomatoes. And I'll say, I don't care. <laughs> and I will serve them a tomato. And at that moment, at that moment, I'm reminded of a really big struggle that I face right now, and I know you do too. And that is that it feels right now like everybody is walking away. I have so many friends that have walked away from religion. It feels alone to follow Jesus right now. And a lot of people are walking away. And it's easy to feel like you're being abandoned but I am reminded, whenever I have those emotions, I'm reminded of my tomatoes. And here's what the tomatoes remind me of. When I'm in my house in summer and I've got somebody who hates tomatoes and they say, I hate tomatoes and I serve them tomatoes and they eat my tomatoes, they will say, those are tomatoes. And I will say, those are tomatoes. And then I remember friends, people don't hate tomatoes. They hate fake tomatoes and they've spent their life thinking they're the same thing. 
I see a lot of people walking away from religion right now. And I'm not convinced it's because people don't want God. I think people are walking away because sometimes they found that religion cannot fill the heart and they need God. In our moment in history, things are being shaken and God is revealing himself. You want God? You want God? Let's pray. Would you stand with me, please? I'm gonna ask him, uh, this, is a, this is a risk, but if you'll stand with me, I'm gonna ask you to do something with me. If you uh, today um, are desperate before God for some kind of healing of your heart, your body, your soul, or your mind, if you need a healing from God, could I ask you to be so bold as to raise your hand? Okay, keep your hand up for a second. If you're standing next to this person, would you put your hand on their shoulder? Reach around, put your hand on their shoulder. If they're uncomfortable with it and say, don't touch me, that's fine, don't touch them. Okay, make sure somebody's got a hand on everybody's shoulder. You can put your hands down. Let's pray. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as we lay our hands on one another, would you bring healing power where there has been death? Would there be restorative life where there has been condemnation? Um, I, I have the sense this morning, and I, I, I just feel risky to say this. I have the sense this morning that there is a young woman or a young man who recently walked out of a relationship that was harmful and you have bought into the lie that you are tainted goods. And Jesus wants you to say and hear, you are my daughter and my son. I also sense there's a person present in our room who is really angry that everyone else seems to get married and you're not. And Jesus, the single guy, says, I'm with you. The goal is not marriage. The goal is Jesus. Holy Spirit, heal. Holy Spirit, heal. Holy Spirit, heal. God, as we lay our hands on one another, we ask that these tongues of fire that rest on our heads would transform us and make us into new people that we could stand like Peter and preach the good news of Jesus. We love you, God. In the power of Jesus, we pray. Amen.